Good morning, Calvary. My name is Weston Bauer. Been going to Calvary for 14 years and part of the same men's group Bible study for about 12. Today's reading will be from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary. I'm often at the Erie campus, but also get to do roles that involve engagement at other campuses, and I'm always grateful to be here with you all and get to open the Word of God and worship together. So we're continuing in this series, Flourish, where we're talking about the relationships that we have with one another. And the image that we're thinking about in this series is the great love that God has for us, the great love that Christ has for us. Colossians 3.12 uses the word for us as beloved, as those who have been loved by God. And we want to consider how does the love of Christ for us shape and inform the way that we relate to one another? An image you could think about is something like this is a garden, or you see the tree up there. If you were to have a garden, we picture ourselves as this garden, as those who have been loved by God, cherished by God, who have experienced his love, his love produces something in us. It produces fruit and righteousness in it. us. It gives us joy. And a healthy, bountiful garden is the image that we're looking for. We want the flourishing of life as God made it to be as his people where we would enjoy the fruit of relationships and where the world would see the way that Christians love and relate to one another and that there'd be something attractive about it. And today we're in this series and we're talking about relationships, but we're going to specifically now be talking about the relationship of human marriage, which is one of the most foundational relationships in our world. And our belief is that God created marriage and that if as the creator of it, that he has a plan for human flourishing in it. I mean, the best way that life will come about is through his design and plan. And I know that as we start this, there's people in all sorts of different circumstances. You might be here this morning and have been divorced or are now married in a good marriage or in a marriage where you're suffering a lot. You could be single and looking to be married, single and not thinking about marriage. It could be all sorts of circumstances in your life. My hope is that as you stick with me, that you will see that what we're talking about here in marriage has implications for each of us. Because Zach mentioned this last week, and also in the Revelation series we looked at this, that one of the primary images that's used of God's relationship with his people is actually a bride. That Christ is the husband and his church is his bride. 
Now, if we were to, and we're going to be looking at this passage, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Now, if, if we were to consider how we could give in someone instructions on marriage, there's a lot of ways we could do that. If we were to think, okay, how do we help maybe the young couples in this church grow in marriage? One way you could do that is you could think of who's a model Who's an example of a marriage? Maybe a couple who's been through the trials. They've been through the highs, the lows. They know what it's like to grieve. They know what it's like to uh, prioritize their marriage. They know what it's like to go through the challenges of life, and yet they've come out with a healthy marriage. And you could put forward a model. But here's what I want you to notice, and this is what's so important that we're going to see in this passage, that when Paul looks for a model that he wants to put forward to the Ephesian church, and that is put before us today through the scriptures. When he looks for a model, the model he's going to go to, to encourage, to exhort, to instruct couples in their marriage, he's going to go to the model of Christ in the church. That's the example he's going to give us. And in order to understand what Paul's doing in this passage and how it applies to us, we really have to understand the illustration that he's using. And so uh, the image he's using is of marriage with husband and wife, and it's described as a one flesh union. So these two becoming one. And in the marriage between Christ and the church, Christ is described as the head and the church is his body. In the marriage between husband and wife, the husband is described as the head and the wife is described as his body. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to base the commands for human marriage based off of this divine marriage between Christ and his church. That's the model. And this imagery of a one flesh union does a couple things for us. It gives us a sense of oneness. Just as your head and your body, they all came here together this morning. They work together. There's this, there's this unity. It's a oneness. You don't separate them. Um, <clears throat> and so the head and body imagery gives that sense, the oneness. But it also gives a sense of order and structure and authority within the relationship. Where Christ is leading his church and the husband here is called to model his leadership in the marriage off of the relationship between Christ and the church. And so this is how Paul is going to instruct the Ephesians and how we're instructed today through God's word as we look at this relationship. And the basic command that Paul is going to lay out is that husbands, this is what you do. You love your wives in the way that Christ loves and loved his church and his sacrifice on the cross. And he's going to say, wives, you submit and respect your husbands in the way that the church respects and honors and submits to Christ. And this is how he's going to lay it out. And in order to see how he's doing that, we're going to look at verses 31 to 32. And I think this gives clarity of Paul's understanding of how these two relationships of this human and divine, or you could say this greater marriage between Christ and the church, and this lesser marriage, not lesser because it's not valuable, but it's not at the level of Christ and the church, relate to one another. So verse 31, read with me this. It says, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so Paul's giving instructions on marriage. He says, okay, a man's going to leave his father and mother. Now what he's doing here, he's actually quoting from Genesis 2.24. So Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. Genesis 2, you have marriage for the first time. And this image is given of a man leaving his father and mother, this comment after Adam and Eve are united in marriage, that a man will leave his father and mother. He's going to hold fast to his wife and the two will become one. 
No longer do they have separate destinies, separate journeys, but their lives are so bound up together that it could be said, their link is so intimate that they are of one flesh. They are one in marriage. And so Paul is looking back at the beginning of scripture. He's talking about marriage. He says, man's going to leave his father and mother. But notice verse 32, he says this, this mystery, and when he says mystery, he's talking about marriage, this mystery of a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife This mystery of marriage is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this mystery is profound, he says. Now, if you were to read a good mystery novel, or if you're like me, you're probably more likely to watch a movie or a TV show with a mystery in it. Um, If you were to watch a a mystery show, read a mystery novel, what's going to happen at the beginning? You'll probably be exposed to clues. And you're given details, but it's a a scene that's somewhat obscure and you don't understand what's fully going on. But as it goes on, any good mystery novel is going to have some crescendo where the reality is going to play out and all these pieces are going to come together into this beautiful understanding and clarity. And it's almost like Paul is saying this. He goes to the beginning of the scripture and says, look, you see husband and wife becoming one in marriage. This is a mystery. It's a profound mystery. And he tells us, I'm saying that what this mystery is about, what it's leading you to, is the mystery of Christ and his people. It's almost as Paul is ripping back the curtain saying, look at what marriage has been about all along. It's meant to tell a story much greater than merely the love of two people. It's meant to tell the story of God's love for his people. It's been said that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. It begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve. But what marriage does it end with? We saw this in Revelation. It's Christ and his church. And the bride is brought to her husband, pure. And they are to live and dwell together forever. And so this is the image that we are given of marriage. That it's this profound mystery. And Paul is saying, okay, this is the basis, therefore, of how do we think about ourselves in the context of marriage? How do we conduct ourselves in marriage? We base the marriage between husband and wife off the greater marriage of Christ and the church. And this becomes, or this is the foundation of marriage and how we understand it. And even as we understand God's created design, we actually understand it with having the gospel and this relationship within mind. And so it's not meant merely to tell the story of two people and their love, but to tell the story of God and his love for his people. But here's something that's important to understand, that when we confuse this, when we confuse the two marriages, and, we live in a, and when we live in a culture that ultimately rejects the greater marriage, so the greater marriage of Christ and the church, when we live in a culture that rejects that marriage of Christ and his church, when we reject God, when we reject the gospel, what's going to happen? Well, we were made with longings and desires. We were made to belong to God as his bride. But when we live in a world that has rejected that narrative, rejected the idea that there is a place in which we find that satisfaction, what can happen is we'll look with all those longings, all those desires, and all that sense of needing to belong and find our purpose, no longer in Christ and the church, but actually in a human marriage. And this is what idolatry is, is when you take a gift from God and you absolutize it. You put it in the place of the giver. So you forget the giver and you take the gift and you make it absolute. And think about just our culture for a moment. 
of how does this happen? Not just in our culture, but we know this in our own lives. How does this happen in our world? Well, rather than looking to our longings, or rather than looking to God for our belonging, our satisfaction and significance, we believe that our own sexuality is going to be the place of our greatest life, meaning, purpose, and definition. We might look to a person and say, they're going to satisfy my longings. If I could just have the right experience, if I could just find the right person, then I'm going to be satisfied. And it's a way that we go down that makes things like divorce much more plausible. Because surely if I'm not happy, it's someone else's fault. Now, there's times where divorce as a tragic reality is necessary. But when we think about this, think about the ways that a destructive nature of idolizing sexuality can lead to hardship in our world. It can leave us in a place where we forget the goodness of God's love for us, and rather we exchange the gift for the giver. And so what is the purpose here? What I'm trying to say is that God's design gives us a foundation. God's design of what marriage is gives us a foundation, and it gives us an understanding and an ethic around marriage. It gives us a reason why we think, why should we love and care for one another and show such steadfast love? Because this is the way that God has shown it to us. And so we see the shape and structure of marriage as we consider Christ in the church. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to go through and we're just going to look at with that in mind of this greater marriage, which Paul is basing the commands of husband and wife off of, we're going to look at his commands to wives, wives and to husbands, and we're going to see what is he commanding and how does that actually look like played out within a marriage context. And so starting in verses 22, we're going to look at his commands to wives. And we see here that Paul says this. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the key command that Paul gives here for wives is that they should submit to their husbands. Or you see a corollary command in verse 33 where a wife should, a wife should respect her husband. So we want to ask the question, okay, what does that actually mean? What is submission? And I think we could define submission in this way. We could say this, that submission for a wife is this. It's to recognize and honor, to recognize and honor the God-given authority and role of her husband in service to the Lord. So it's to recognize and honor the God-given authority and role of her husband in service to the Lord. Now, to be really clear from the start, this doesn't mean that the husband is greater than his wife. Galatians 3.28 is a passage that makes this abundantly clear, where we're told that there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And before that says there's no Jew, Greek, slave-free. And the idea is that all of us are one. If we are in Christ, we are one. Equal dignity, value, worth. You see this also in the very beginning. God creates man and woman in his image. But then you see that as those who are made in his image, they're given these roles within marriage, which are corollary, corollary in marriage. And so it's not, to, for a wife to submit to her husband is not for the husband to have a greater authority. But what submission does mean is that a husband has a role within marriage, which is a role of leadership that is to model the leadership of Christ, the, the leadership that Christ has in, with his church in that relationship. 
In verse 24, we see the extent also to which Paul calls for submission. It says this, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So this is a fullness of life type of submission, that the church is to submit to Christ in all things, and so the wife is to submit to her husband in all things. And the image that would come out of this is that husband and wife are united. They're united in their life, in their purpose, in their mission, and there's no division in what they are about. This doesn't mean they wouldn't have different roles, and obviously this doesn't mean we wouldn't have different challenges and difficulties we'd go through, but ultimately you'd get a sense of oneness and unity within that marriage. So let's think about this for a second then, and some of the tension might be resolved with this, but what is submission not? What is submission not? So if that's submission, it's to recognize the role of her husband, to honor, to respect the leadership of the husband. What is submission not? It's not submitting to evil or anything which can't be done to the Lord. Notice in verse 22, and this is so important, it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You see, to submit as to the Lord is not to follow her husband into evil, any evil, sin, or abuse. The ultimate authority in human marriage is Christ. The ultimate authority to which everyone submits to is to Christ. The husband cannot ask his wife to do anything evil or wrong or sinful, or she rightly will say no, because he is not in that authority. It's also an authority that's not merely external. And what I mean by this is it's not merely just for a wife to say, yes, I agree with my husband, or I'm going to follow what my husband's saying, but it's, it's a fullness of life. It's a respect. It's an honor. It's a love. It's not to say yes to something that her husband is leading in, but then at the same time to put him down, either in front of him or in front of other pers- people. And it's not weakness. It's not weakness for a wife to submit to her husband. It's not voicelessness. Think, think for a moment about the image of the head and body. You see, for, for that relationship, there has to be a dynamic communication. Like when you're hungry, your stomach communicates to your head. And those signals going back and forth is vital to the flourishing of your body. And so for, in, in this marriage context, even as you think about what does submission for a wife mean, it doesn't mean a voicelessness. Actually, there has to be a dynamic interplay of communication for a healthy functioning of a body in the same way that a husband and wife need a dynamic interplay of communication. Otherwise, they will not be able to flourish. So it's not voicelessness, it's not weakness, it's actually going to often require great strength and trust, and it's not a loss of dignity. Now, I know that for some, the topic of submission within marriage is one that just lands very heavily, and I know many would disagree with even what we're going to be going on about with this in this passage this morning. But I want to present just a few ideas of why This is actually best for human flourishing. How could this actually give us a vision of what a healthy marriage looks like in our world today? And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have towards this topic comes from the idea that we often think about marriage and relationships in a very competitive way, in a competitive framework. Like you bring your desires to the table, you negotiate, and you hope to get your way out of it. And a lot of our world, we know this, like I don't have to prove this, a lot of our world functions in way that authority is misused and we don't trust people in positions of authority. And one of the ways that I think that we can actually understand the design that we're talking about here in marriage with authority, respect, love, submission, 
um, is by understanding that that competitive framework is actually going to eat at any idea of unity within the body. As long as we conceive of things within a competitive sense, it won't work. And actually, if we think about it in this way competitively, it eats away at the one flesh union idea. Because it's not merely that a husband loves his wife as another, but the husband is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect and honor her husband. But you realize that they're actually loving themselves in that in a very real sense, because their unity is one. They're one in their marriage going forward together. Their life purpose is that we would glorify God as one. It's not me at the sake of you, but it's us together. But so often the way that we think competitively can actually undermine that. And, and that makes sense in a world where we often think of sexuality in terms of consuming others, of gratifying our desires, but not caring for the other. And we live in a world that constantly tells us that this is the way we should understand ourselves, to get what we desire, but not to serve. And so I want us to think about how does this actually build up? And, and we're starting here with the wife. And one thing I think we just say is that wife has tremendous power to build up her husband with her words. In verse 33, the, the command is that the husband should love his wife as himself, and the wife is to see that she respects her husband. One commenter, uh, when looking at this passage, says something I think is helpful for us. He says this, probably the most fragile mechanism and the whole creation is the male ego. One of the most difficult things to admit or to understand is that there is probably nothing that a man wants more from his wife than her admiration. There's probably nothing that a woman wants more from her husband than his attention, taking her seriously and treating her with the greatest dignity. So when you think about these commands, actually, of love and respect, 33, you see that there's this building up dynamic, this unity, this oneness dynamic. And for wives, if you think, okay, what, what, do I, what does this practically look like? One very practical and real way is the power of your words. Understanding there's great power in the words of a wife to build or to tear down, to bring up, and even to notice the ways that your husband imperfectly will be leading and to affirm and to encourage in that knowing that there's a great power in that. Now, I know a lot of the hesitancy, like I said, towards this idea of submission within marriage can come down to abuse. Not all of it. I think ever since the fall, there's been a dynamic where husband and wife are now at odds with one another rather than working together. But like I said, we don't really need to prove that there's been abuses of authority by men in our world. It could go pretty, pretty well known without giving extensive details. So I want to flip now, and I want to ask the question of how should a husband conduct himself in marriage? And I think this brings together the picture in a really helpful way. So look with me at verse 25. And in verse 25, this is what we're told. Husbands, love your, wife, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as the principal command for a wife was to submit to her husband, the principal command for a husband is to love his wife. But I want you to notice the past tense loved in verse 25, as Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. When Paul is thinking in these verses, 25 through 27, about the love of a husband for his wife, he has a 
point in time in his mind. He's thinking of an event. He's thinking of the death of Christ on the cross. And that's the example for the life as Christ loved the church in his death on the cross. This is the example. This is the example that is so ingrained in our world, we might even miss it. That this is the great love of a husband. That Christ is the one who comes to his bride. He enters into sure danger and death to free his wife from the dragon, from the devil, to deliver his bride from the tyranny of sin and death and to take her to be with him forever. He is the archetypical hero, the archetypical husband, the example of what love and sacrifice looks like. And it shows up all in our world because it's a story that we will never be able to escape because it's ultimately the greatest story that's ever been told. And Paul is looking at this and saying, husband, what should your love for your wife look like? It should look like a sacrifice at the cost of yourself to be willing to give up anything for the sake of your wife. And what this command should do is this. It should humble any husband And it should absolutely rid him of the idea that somehow if I'm the leader in the home, I'm going to get the good end of the deal. I can can really use my leadership as a means of self-satisfaction because that is not the image that we get in Christ. You see, this is what a worldly vision of leadership says. A worldly vision of leadership says, if I'm the leader, I can get my, I, I, I can satisfy my desires. If I'm the leader, I really get the good end of the deal and I can satisfy myself. I can get what I want. But Jesus calls that leadership out in his ministry. In Matthew 20, he actually calls that sort of a leadership the way that the Gentiles lead that the non-Christian world leads. They lord it over people. They use their positions of authority to, lead, to, to, use, to consume others, to do for their own good. But think about the example that Christ gives in his leadership. How does he wield his authority? How does he wield his leadership? He is Lord of all, and yet what does he do? He comes to serve. He comes as a slave. He comes to give up his life for his people. And we see that the church benefits from his love and his sacrifice, and Paul is calling us to that. And what's fascinating to consider is this, that authority is not bad, but even to go a step further, authority is actually not even a neutral thing. It's not like authority is something that can be used for good or can be used for bad, but actually authority is inherently good. It's inherently good. And so think about this as an example I heard that I think helps with this. If you think about parents with their children, as parents raise their children, they have a sense of responsibility and authority. And they raise their children for their good. They love, they care, they they nourish, they uh, care for their children, and they raise them up. They build them up. They empower them to grow and mature. But we know they have a certain sense of responsibility in this situation, which makes it all the more tragic when we see abuse or neglect. Because they are the very ones who should be loving and caring for their children. And so what this means is that authority is actually part of how God's designed and created things. But the question is, what type of authority? And there's worlds between the authority that we see in our world and the authority that we see in Christ and the way that he leads with his church. And it makes it all the more tragic 
when a husband fails to love and to serve. Because there's a very calling that he would be willing to give up his life. It's what makes so tragic abuse. It's what makes so tragic when a husband wields his power or physical strength at the neglect of his wife. Because what he's called to do in the gospel is to love and to serve. And in verses 28 to 30, Paul goes on and he continues to clarify that the love of a husband is, is like the love for his own body. Again, it's not this competitive framework. It's love and care for his own body, the way that he nourishes and cherishes his wife. So putting it all together, how does this lead to actual flourishing? If a husband loves in this way, well, one thing going back to what we were talking about earlier is I think it creates an environment in which submission makes sense. In, in which submission should be a joy and a blessing. If a husband truly leads as Christ leads the church, this will be a building up and not a tearing down. It would create a context in which submission would actually make sense. See, it's the husband's role also. Why is this beautiful and good? It's the husband's role to bring out the best in his wife. As the wife can build up her husband, the husband can build up and care for his wife, and they can grow together in maturity as one. And as the husband does this, he needs to be responsive to his wife. He, like the head needs to be responsive to the needs of the body, the husband has to be in tune with the needs, the desires, the pains, the joys, of his wife so that properly knowing her, he can know how to love and care for her. He can know how to respect and honor and serve her. There's an illustration that I think puts this in a helpful way. Uh, when you think about dancing, uh, when a couple dances, one person has to take the lead. But if a husband were to lead and dance. So we'll go husband and wife in this illustration. If a husband was to lead in dancing with his wife, and he were to do so in a way that wasn't ten intentional and careful, it would be confusing. My mom was sharing a while back that when she had first started to try learning dancing with my dad, she realized that she was trying to lead and it made things more confusing. And she actually, she, I'm sure she was much better at dancing than my dad was. Um, but when she actually let him lead, it, it, it was able to come together in a better way. Well, because you need leadership in that circumstance. One person has to give intentional purpose. But if a husband really is leading his wife and dancing well, he's going to be attentive to what are her needs? What are her abilities? If you're in your 60s, you're probably not going to do flips or something. It's like, what are her needs? What are her abilities? And actually, there's an intentional, purposeful leadership. But the leadership of one dancing should never look violent or coercive. If that's the way it looks, it's just going to look like just a total failure from the outside. You're, what, what's going on there? But it's intentional, purposeful, graceful. And the role of a man in dancing with his wife, she, he should also highlight her beauty and her grace as he does that. And I think this is the role of a husband. What should his leadership look like? It should look like Christ. It should be done in such a way that he thinks about her flourishing and her benefit, how he can highlight and draw out the best in her. It's not demanding or harsh or embittered. You see, one of the dangers in our culture, well, there's two for men. It's this, that a husband can either take the spot where he just neglects his responsibility by being completely passive and saying, I'm not going to lead. I don't want to get involved in any issues. I'm, I'm going to kind of step back. That's a neglect. But another sense of neglect of responsibility is to be harsh and domineering. 
rather than actually loving and caring, is to domineer. And so one is to rule over harshly and the other is to be absent. And these are really just corollaries of the same sin, which is a neglect of responsibility. But the husband here is called to serve and love his wife. It's actually, he's actually not called to be the head. The illustration is that he is the head. But as the leader in the home, the call that he's, is put on him is to bear the burden of love and sacrifice and service for his wife. So let's conclude this. Husbands love his wife as his own body. To love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife is to respect and honor her husband. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we're in different contexts here. And some of you may be in this uh, morning, you may be in a spot where you're single, where you're married, where you're divorced and remarried, where you're looking for marriage, where you're not looking for marriage, where you may never be married, where you're happy in your marriage, where it's hard in your marriage. There's a quote by Sam Albury, who's a pastor who's same-sex attracted, um, and he's celibate. And so for the sake of the ministry, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of following Christ, he's foregoing marriage. And he has a great quote that I just think lands on every circumstance that we think about when it comes to marriage. He says this, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, so marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, is what we talked about, Christ and the church, husband and wife. He says this, singleness shows us its sufficiency. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It shows us the sufficiency because in singleness, what we say is this, God, you are my ultimate joy. My ultimate joy is to know and walk with Christ. And therefore, I will submit my life and my sexuality to him. He is Lord, and where he leads me, I will go. Circumstance of life. It shows the sufficiency because we say that the greatest joy in life is not human marriage. It's the greater marriage of Christ and his church. And so think about how this applies in different circumstances. Maybe you're divorced and you went through a hard marriage. Maybe that was by something that you had done or the other spouse had done or some combination wherein. You can look at Christ in the church and you can remember this. God says to his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In our marriages, which at times fail, we were reminded of the unfailing love of God. Maybe you're widowed. And in the grief of that, you rem you're reminded that the greatest is yet to come. No matter how much you may miss your spouse, maybe you're looking to be married. And this can give you a picture of what do I actually look for in marriage? And not even do I just find someone who says I want to follow Jesus, but do they actually have the same vision of what marriage is intended to be? Do they agree on what marriage is to tell the story? That marriage is to tell the story of the gospel to the world. Do they agree on that view? Is that what their heart is in marriage? To those who are never married, it's a reminder that what they miss in this life will be far exceeded in the age to come. While human marriage will pass away, the marriage of Christ and the church is what will endure throughout all generations. If you're happily married, it reminds you to not idolize your spouse. To, don't look, to not look for too much from them. To know that your longing and satisfaction has to be in Christ. If you're struggling in marriage, it shows you where you can find grace for your spouse. Because you have a 
Christ, the God who has loved you so greatly when you were undeserving and when we are undeserving, he continues to shower his love down on us today. So in every circumstance of our, of our lives, whether married or single, or where we might find ourselves, what we can see is that the gospel speaks to this. And actually the topic of marriage profoundly speaks to this. And the secret of joy and flourishing, the secret of contentment in every season of life is knowing who we are in Christ and willingly and joyfully living out our lives as those who have been loved by him and are called beloved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this image that you give us of being beloved. And I pray that that would profoundly shape us. Pray for the different circumstances we find ourselves in today. Um, That we would know that you are with us and we would know that you love us. For husbands, in the room, I pray that they would find the strength to sacrifice and to serve and to love their wives. Pray for wives in the room, that they would love and honor their husbands. I pray for the failures that we've all endured in our lives, Lord. The ways in which we failed to live sacrificially, the ways in which we failed to honor and love and serve one another. I pray that you would just allow us to go to you in your grace to find help today. Pray that we wouldn't look inward, but we would look to you alone and that you would bring about healing and hope. And I pray that your church would be a place in which the marriages in this place are witness to the world of the hope that we have in Christ. And the ways that we conduct ourselves as single and married would show that our joy comes from you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.